Well, we've had 15 months of pandemic and lockdown, but the Bader International Study Center keeps going strong as we prepare for our spring 2021 term that begins on Monday, May 10th. So here we go with another episode of the Castle Podcast. Welcome back to the Castle Podcast, now brought to you through Podbean and available on your smart devices. Just ask for BISC Podcast. Today we have two features. First, an interview with Castle Popular Music Professor Shara Rambaran, whose new book has just been released, and we'll also be speaking with former BISC student Roy Jang, who will tell us about what he's been researching lately. So, let's get started with first, the news. A man has trouble with his wallpaper, Ontario's doors are still closed, and all you'll feel is a little prick. In British news, Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in trouble again, this time for how he paid for what is reported to be gold wallpaper. He may have been financed by a friend, he may have paid for the wallpaper himself, it isn't clear. But despite this latest scandal, the Tory party still managed to hold and even gain some seats in the latest council elections. It seems the British voting public has more on its mind than home furnishings. In Canadian news, Ontario and Alberta are suffering from another prolonged lockdown. There are reports that the Ontario lockdown will be eased on May 20th, although that still remains to be confirmed by government sources. The UK, however, is set to finally be free of its most strict restrictions on Monday, May 17th. The UK's vaccine rollout has been broadly successful, with more than 50% of the adult population having had their first jab, and 15% having received full coverage. This is good news for the UK, where with luck, lockdowns will now be behind us as we drive towards herd immunity projected to be reached by the end of August of this summer. If you haven't yet registered, you may want to consider coming to the castle for the autumn term, as we project to be welcoming students in September of this year. And that's all for the news. And now it's time for our first feature. The castle's own Dr. Shara Rambaran is promoting her third book, This one is a monograph on virtual music. I spoke with Shara earlier this week. I'm here with Dr. Shara Rambaran, who teaches popular music at the castle, and we're here to talk about her new book, which has just come out. Hello, Shara. How are you doing? Hi, Robert. Thank you for inviting me um, for this podcast. Yes, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm excellent. So we're here to talk about your new book, and uh, that is available through Bloomsbury Press, and this is Virtual Music, Sound, Music, and Image in the Digital Era, Uh, and that just came out in 2021. Uh, It's available to purchase. You can buy it in hardback, paperback, or in EPUB format. The EPUB version is on discounted sale right now. It's £15.83 for the EPUB if you buy that through the Bloomsbury website. That's bloomsbury.com slash UK slash virtual dash music. The paperback is £19.79. It's also available on Amazon and other book platforms. But let's talk about the book projects. Um, What was the germination of this project? How did you get started with this? Well, um, virtual music, um, yeah, it, it traces back all the way back to my PhD days uh, where I focused on uh, mainly on digital technology 
and how creators would manipulate technology in their music compositions, mainly in remixing and using past sounds and sources into new work. So particular styles and genres that I kind of looked into included mainly hip hop and electronica. And then from there, because we're thinking like from 2004 onwards when the internet and technology in terms of virtuality and digital technology really really exploded and it it just became apparent and so evident that you know the use of technology was not only restricted to professional and amateur musicians literally anyone could have a go at it regardless of ability and one of the things that resonated with me was that it was more more accessible to practitioners and consumers and anyone who just wanted that opportunity to make music and then from there on after I got my PhD I was very fortunate enough to collaborate with one of my PhD supervisors and to turn some of my research into a publication but we turned it into an edited project so that was published in 2015 Obviously, when that book got about, it got a really good reception um, because not only that we were very, you know, fortunate and very lucky to have great authors in the book. We, you know, we were, were very lucky to have authors from all over the world. So it was a very, it's a very global um, and accessible, friendly book. And in 2017, I got approached by Bloomsbury, um, who became familiar with the book. And they were interested for me to do a monograph version of a similar subject. So that's where my book project for virtual music started. Brilliant. So this is actually your third book, isn't it? Because there's the uh, handbook with uh, Dr. Sheila Whiteley. uh, And then there's the Routledge Research Companion to Popular Music Education. And now your monograph. In terms of the research method, uh, how did you organize this book? Um, how did you conceive of the book as a project? To be honest with you, when you, when you look at the book title alone, Virtual Music, that is quite complex <laughs> in itself because, you know, like trying to define popular music, it can cover many, many areas. And one of the main um, subjects that I'm passionate about is history. Obviously, I teach history at the castle, you know, so there's a lot of reference to past sounds. I was mainly dealing with that area and how we bring it into the present. And of course, before the pandemic hit us, um, you know, performances were becoming more hotter you know, Mm. in terms of live experiences. So, um, you know, it's moving more into the virtuality side of things. So I was focusing on that rather than really honing in on the science side of it or really getting stuck in um, to the instruments or software, you know, the really technical stuff. Because what, what we wanted for this book was to reach out other than academic academia Mm. because it is such a hot topic and 
So that was the direction. I wanted it to be accessible for readers. And so is the book then focusing predominantly on music from America, music from Britain, or does it have a global outreach? Definitely got a global outreach. So we have a bit of British popular music, America and Canada and Japan as well and and Europe as well so it's very global friendly. Are there any particular case studies from your book that you found really engaging when you were doing your research? Yes for example I looked at craft work even though that you know you could trace them back to the 1970s or whatnot I tried to um, present their work in a virtual sense through their music and what their music was trying to portray through the use of electronic sounds and machines and technology you know I was trying to argue you know it gives off that it's very experimental it sounds very futuristic way ahead of its time and this is like years ago uh, one of my main passions and I know whoever's listening to this will go oh here she goes again um danger mouse <laughs> um yeah so I've been looking at this work for many years I know whoever's listening will know what I'm, who I'm talking about um, and it, and two particular works I looked at um, the great album which actually inspired me to do this PhD uh, years ago with the mashup remix culture so I talk about that and I talk about um, Nell Sparkley as well um, one of his other projects which was a collaboration with CeeLo Green uh, which was interesting because the song that I talked about, a lot of people don't know, but it was actually based on spaghetti Western film music. So, and, it, and he, Danger Mouse, transformed it into a pop gospel song and, you know, it became a really famous track. I, I also talk about The Weeknd and his music videos. And what's fascinating about The Weeknd is that he always invites the audience somehow to participate with him in his live performances. He doesn't leave anyone out. And I also argue that he is, he's really fascinating to watch. He's the one to watch, I have to, uh, have to say. He's in the, it's almost at the same level as David Bowie and Grace Jones and Madonna because he can play with his identity and he's so young. And he's doing, you know, he gets away with it. He's doing really well. He can experiment with different genres and styles. And whatever he produces, you know, it is really fascinating to watch. Also look at video games, music. A video game from Canada called Cuphead. And what's really interesting about that is that for a computer game, the music soundtrack is jazz, <laughs> jazz music, which is unusual as well for video game music. Once you play the game, it all kind of falls into place. It makes sense. But what's really fascinating about jazz music, this was performed live by jazz musicians. And, it, you know, and the process behind it is really, it's really, really great because it's vintage it's a mixture of vintage recording but also it is really fast music but also when you hear it even though it was recorded a couple of years ago when you hear it you actually think it's actually from the 1930s 1940s but it's not so it's really really fascinating and I was very privileged to talk to the composer um, Chris Madigan uh, on how he came up with the music and I, I was very privileged to talk to one of uh, the bass player as well or who who played on the soundtrack because it won a lot of awards <laughs> in mm. North America so yeah so I look to video games so uh, yeah so I, I do cover a lot of things but I guess the, my main 
from 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 this book, the one that I really enjoyed um, analysing was Grace Jones. Uh, that brings a tear to my eye when I was like looking at a video because of all the Grace Jones videos, I picked the most what could be arguably the least visual, <laughs> if you like, visual appealing. However, um, because she's let down her guard in this one. But it is so beautiful to watch. I mean, obviously, you have to read the book to find out, but it's not what you expect at all. But if you pay attention to the colours used, the lighting used, and how she appears in the visual, because she is like, she's displaying all her identities as Grace Jones, but it's the way she does it is so beautiful. And, and the music just fits in well with her video. And, you know, that, that was my most favourite one mm. uh, to study yeah so in terms of further directions um this is in a lot of ways quite groundbreaking as a book because it's covering something that hasn't really been written about uh, significantly so where do you suppose researchers or, or yourself will go next um from this research project if i'm honest with you um this was completed just before the pandemic hit, right? And, and a lot of things have happened since that I have not covered in the book. However, of course, that doesn't stop other people from writing about it. Um, from this from, from this book, they can definitely take away um, video game music, live performances, identities, um, remixing. You know, there's still opportunities out there. And what I, I think, even though, you know, even though I, I can... Put my hands up and say look I haven't covered everything I ha I did complete this before you know before we were hit by the pandemic that doesn't mean you can't right so um and because you know how you know with this kind of topic anyway you know you have to start and stop somehow it is like trying to write about popular music you know it's always evolving and what and whoever reads this book I do advise do read the introduction because you know it does tell you how I approach this book what I'm covering why I can't cover everything kind of thing so yeah so I think that it's important as well we are in this territory now this digital age where things are just constantly going to be evolving and I do look forward to see what else is going to happen yeah especially in terms of creating or composing or listening to music Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Shara. I've been talking with Shara Rambaran, who's just finished her book, Virtual Music, Sound, Music and Image in the Digital Era, which is available through Bloomsbury Press. Uh, you can purchase that on the Bloomsbury Publishing website. It's 1979 in paperback or 1583 for ebook. And that's, of course, also available on Amazon uh, if you wish to purchase a Kindle version. Thank you so much, Shara, and good luck with uh, the book tour. We will be holding a virtual book launch for Shara's book at the castle on Zoom on Wednesday, May 19th at 5 p.m. British summertime. And so look for adverts for that coming in the near future. Thank you, Shara. Thank you, Rob. Thanks. There is a lot of research happening at the castle this term, and we have a research talk by Emily Montford coming up in the next few days. Look for details of that in your emails and newsletters. We'll also be having a faculty research talk with Dr. Peter Lowe and two book launches this term with Dr. Rambaran and Dr. Tim Hazar, whose edited anthology was also released earlier this year. And of course, we will be celebrating the research of the Bisque summer students at our end of term Summer Plus Research Showcase. Look for more details of that in the coming weeks.
And finally, earlier this year, I spoke with former BISC student Roy Jang about what he's been up to since having studied at the castle. I'm here with Roy Jang, and he's a former student of the BISC. He's a Queen's graduate, and we're going to talk about where he's at now, what he's researching, and uh, how he got there. Uh, Hello, Roy. Hello, Robert. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. Now, Roy, when did you come to the BISC, and what made you apply? Well, I first I went to BISC in um, the fourth semester of 2015. Um, I applied for this program first. Um, I, I've always wanted to come to Queens, but once I find out Queens has this special program to study abroad for a whole year in England, I was immediately intrigued. Uh, so I applied out of curiosity and out of my desire to just travel around the world. But it turns out to be a wonderful year of my life. Uh, I've made great friends. I've learned a lot and I never regret it. Um, it's just wonderful. Brilliant. And what did you study uh, when you were at Queen's? Uh, I'm, um, I did my undergrads in film and media department. So film and media will be my major. Uh, I did not have a minor, but I took a bunch of interdisciplinary course to compensate. That's not the word, but to just sort of um, make the whole study. Yeah, augment. Yeah, that's good. Oh, excellent. And uh, the castle was your only study abroad experience? Uh, no, uh, I went on exchange um, during my third year to St. Andrews University um, in Scotland. Um, so that's also a four-year exchange program. So I always told my friends this wonderful experience to split my university four year into two years in UK and two years in Canada. Um, it's sometimes very confusing, but totally rewarding. And how has that shaped your academic work? One of the most like remarkable things Biscans told me is it is always very important to combine, you know, academic study with um, a mix of field trip, a mix of on-field research. Um, There's just too much beyond that textbook and the lecture room. So I learned a lot through traveling, through socializing with people around the world, as much as I um as i read from books as well but. fantastic and so where are you at now and what are you doing now um i'm doing my master degree um at queen's university so after three years of traveling around the world i'm finally settled in canada uh yeah it's a it's a two years program um culture studies department is an interdisciplinary study department so we have a, have a very diverse cohort um, everyone's working on different topic, but we meet once a while and talk about our research. So yeah, I'm, I'm in Canada. This is my second year of MA. So I did my first year with coursework and now I'm doing my independent studies. And what is your research project? So my research project tends to investigate movie theaters, uh, the independent ones, the community-based ones. So it rules out all the multiplexes. It rules out definitely your home-based entertainment unit. So no Netflix, no Hulu, no uh, Amazon Prime. What I'm looking into is community-based film house in Toronto specifically. There's not many. Um, as far as I know, there's around five 
five or six, uh, and I will eventually just go investigate about three of them. My research question kind of surrounded around why people still go to those film houses these days when they have so many alternative uh, way of consuming medias. And one of the keywords I focused on would just be the community because all these film theaters, they go beyond screens. Um, they're the hub for community gathering. They're the hub for a uh, community-driven event. And my methodology would just be Zoom interviews with patrons who go there and ask them kind of question about why you're still going. What do you do there? Do you still take family there? And what are the big takeaways? And I will also interview with, uh, with business owners and also with like community culture workers and see in what kind of ways do they structure the business to resonate with community voice and also with the culture industry in general in Toronto. I think it's a great project uh, because these are community centers. They have a, a long history going back to the 1930s. And uh, it's something that I feel quite sad to see go. Um, some of my favorite cinemas in the world are very small community cinemas. In uh, London, there's the Prince Charles Cinema, which is a fantastic small cinema. Uh, and in Nagoya, Japan, there's a small Cinematheque. And these go back to the principles of the Cinematheque Francaise that was started in uh, Paris. But... Um, what got you interested in this research project? Uh, so basically, I did my my undergrad in film and media, um, which mostly thanks to a great time uh, teaching your courses uh, at the BISC. That's where I eventually realized how much I'm into study film. But after four years of study film series, study um, analyzing films, uh, I find out film is more than just the content, right? Um, and we have this amazing community film house in Kingston. It's called The Screening Room. Uh, it's where I would go almost weekly doing my undergrads, although I only spent two years there, but that is my sweet spot. And I know the owner well. Uh, I also did a documentary on that, that little theater. Um, so I just find out like film is just more than the content itself, the way it's being presented to the public the space under which people will perceive this kind of media and go beyond that. That is really interesting. Before I land on this project, uh, I talked to many of my friends who would also go to the screening room and they share me stories in great diversity and with emotion. I started this project uh, with the hope to have an archive, right? And hopefully someday people will come back and pick it up and look at this kind of, um, you know, social exchange happening inside of the cinema room. And hopefully this kind of culture will never be forgotten or just will keep surviving this way. And do you think there is a future for these small cinemas? Or do you think um, as people shift to more and more online streaming services, um, they'll reserve the cinemas for blockbusters? Or do you think people will continue to go to these small cinemas? Well, I think the history of, of movie theater um, has proven to us that it will continue to survive in some way, but only in some way. Uh, it will lose its, um, its hegemonic power, right? Uh, I feel like cinema uh, in 21st century is still cinema. It's never going to disappear, but it's just going to lose its uh, hegemonic power to VR, to home streaming services. People will still go back there for some reasons, right? 
there are certain features that cannot be replaced. For example, if you want to hang out with your friends, um, you can do it at your home, but it's an entirely different experience. So I believe people who love that aspect of film will still go back there. But there will be other, maybe a new generation of moviegoers will prefer to go to multiplexes while watching an entirely different cinema. They will also prefer to stay at home. So I think it's just a matter of, you know, the breaking of different demographic pattern and um, the future is personalized, right? You choose the way you prefer and people prefer to go to community film house was continue going there but what i'm really concerned is that that number of people is decreasing i think you're right the community center of cinema is something that isn't spoken about quite enough that cinema has always been something that demands to be talked about and uh, i don't know if netflix satisfies that um, I don't know if watching a film and then going on to an online forum to type about the film is really as immediate or as satisfying as seeing a film and immediately talking with your friends about the film that you've just watched. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the things I find out uh, throughout my interview with uh, all these participants is that this kind of small cinema is does have uh, a certain feature to be, you know, to to just be community and uh, it supports small film festivals. Um, the, the, the cinema I'm just doing my interview on is called Review. Uh, it is the center of Ronchesville Village in Toronto, which is historically a Polish community. But in recent years, it has transferred itself into like artist community center. Uh, Review Cinema just play a huge role inside of it. They encourage individuals to host film festival or organize individual events. So there's like, um, there's a niche film festival, it's called Motorcycle Film Festivals. It is raised by one of the community members who is a big fan of motorcycle. And he approached the director of programming at the cinema and says, hey, I want to do this. And the director just says, yeah, uh, we'll give you a, a discount on, on renting the space and just do your stuff. So during the festival, there are a number of motorcycles just park outside of cinema. It is an event that brings a very niche community around Toronto, maybe even outside of Toronto, inside of this small cinema. It is an event, and um, that's uh, it's it, it's just really amazing to hear that. I, I mean, need more time to theorize all my findings, but um, this is my initial reaction. It is it is amazing. And also in small cinemas, there's a process of curation that uh, the films are chosen, they're selected. They're not just handed to the venue by a major distribution channel. Uh, and so I, I like that, that there is somebody who acts as the heart of the local cinema who manages what is screened and, and decides what they want to show. And I think that's also an, a factor that is missing from a lot of these networked uh, streams of uh, watching films where there is uh, no choice. It's all about uh, commerce. During my serialization of my research context, um, Toronto is especially neoliberal um, alongside its southern neighbor. The, the film exhibition industry in Toronto is highly, highly condensed and highly concentrated. Uh, because uh, Cineplex controls 70%, 75% of all the capital. Mm. Uh, with the 25% left, you have to divide it 
by other multiplexes corporation and also um, like major film festival led venues like TIFF, uh, TIFF Lightbox and also Hot Dogs. So whatever that's left for independent film house is less than 5%. That is the worst worldwide among all the developed Western nations. Mm. So I believe like United States would be um, 30-ish percent and UK is like 40-ish percent. Um, but Canada, there's only 25% left for individuals. Mm. Um, so I think my research in this way particular um, has picked a quite representative case study uh, among all these Western nations. There's also the question of Canadian cinema. Um, you mentioned Cineplex, and uh, they, I think, purchased Famous Players, which was a Canadian distribution. They also uh, purchased, um, I think, Lionsgate, which was also a Canadian distribution channel. So it means that for a film to show in Canada it has to be distributed by an American distribution network. And that squeezes out Canadian films, that the only way a Canadian film gets shown in Canada is if it's shown in America first. And that means that uh, the only place for Canadian films is in local cinemas uh, that have uh, control over what they show. So I think there is also, also a big problem in Canada of where do Canadian films get seen? And the answer is, yeah, they don't. Yeah, exactly. Um, on that issue, um, there's a film, there's a Canadian film I watched last year. It is the Canadian selection for Oscar entry. It's called Antigo. It did well in TIFF. It did well in all kinds of international film festivals. But it never got distributed localized by Cineplex. But I eventually watched this film on the opening night of Kingston Canadian Film Festival. So that's the other way. And I, I would say the most notable way uh, people can watch Canadian-made content, that's in Kingston. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk about your research work, Roy. Uh, good luck with the rest of your master's. Where do you think you'll go from there? Uh, do you have plans for next year? Um, thanks for asking. And um, again, thanks for hosting this, Robert. Um, I'm not sure about the future. Uh, my current plan would just be finishing this writing and hopefully make some impact. Um, but in terms of future, I want to do like independent uh, filmmaking and a mix of video making business. Um, I want to start my own studio and um, keep producing documentaries like this. I know it's going to be hard financial wise, but, uh, but you know, telling story has always been one of my great design. Um, doing my undergrads also, um, that shapes my perspective of filmmaking in some way. Well, thank you so much, Roy. Have a great uh, week. That's all for this podcast. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>